We're going to be turning to the book of James this morning. Go ahead and uh, turn there. We're going to be in James chapter 3 as our main text. We're going to be taking a break from Luke this morning. I'm going to be focusing in on uh, sort of a more counseling-focused uh, sermon for us, but um, as we'll see today, this is, this is just very vital to us as believers. And so, <clears throat> James chapter 3, we're going to be looking at the verses 1 through 12, so let me read it for us as we dive in. James 3, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to bridle his whole body. If we put bits in the mouths of horses, so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts in great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird and reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. So a lot to be covered this morning. Before we can really understand what James is trying to, to get uh, apart to us here, we've got to understand a little bit about the book of James. We've got to ha- take a little bit of this in context. And so a little bit of background for us to understand. This letter is attributed to James, the half-brother of Jesus, and he was a leader in the Jerusalem church. And he was one of the pillars of the early church, which means he, he had an eyewitness account that would have known Jesus very well, and his words reflect that of Jesus' is quite um, closely that we'll see. The earliest, this was the earliest written book of the New Testament canon, or at least thought to be. It was written to Jewish believers who had been dispersed, possibly the result of, at the result of Stephen's martyrdom in Acts 7. So this would have been before the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. So somewhere around Acts 12 is when this is believed to have been written and dispersed to, to the Jewish believers. The book of James is Jewish in content, and that matters to us because we have to understand first the primary context of who this is written to for us to understand the the meaning that is being departed to us. James contains more than 40 allusions to the Old Testament and more than 20 to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7. James uh, compliments, I should say, not contemplates, James compliments Paul's emphasis on justification by faith alone with his own emphasis on spiritual fruitfulness demonstrating true faith. So Paul's letters, sometimes that gets confused because it seems as if Paul is saying that works do not matter at all, that we are just saved by faith alone, which is true. James is not disagreeing with that, but what he is saying is if we are truly saved by faith alone through Christ, then our works will display that. And James puts a high emphasis on that through this book. James wrote with an emphasis on the readers being fully devoted and uncompromisingly obedient to the Word of God. He is very black and white in what he says. 
James draws the line that we should draw to help us understand the worship of our hearts. He would say that godly behavior would demonstrate a true belief over theoretical knowledge. We've talked about that here before, but theoretical knowledge or theoretical understanding would be what we hope to be true, what we think should be true, even what we might confess to be true, but it's not displayed in our lives and our actions. Where true saving faith is trust, trusting what we know to be true, and showing that in our faith and our actions. You all demonstrate a true faith right now about chairs because you sit in them, right? Theoretical knowledge about chairs, we'd all be standing up in here saying that the chair will hold us up. The chair will support our weight. The chair is good to sit in, yet no one is sitting. That's a, a kind of a silly demonstration, but that is the difference between theoretical belief and true saving faith. And the Jews had plenty of this. There were many who were preaching, who were teaching, who were talking about the law of God, yet their lives did not display a trust in it at all. And that truth is true for us today as well. We see James focus in on this all throughout his letter, and I just want to show you a few so that it helps us understand where we're at today. But James 1, verse 5, talks about how we should seek wisdom from God in faith in the face of trials. At the testing of a trial, our response should be to seek the wisdom of the Lord, but not to be double-minded in doing so. James 1, 22, he reminds us to be a doer of the word, not just a hearer only. Just to hear the word, just to sit in religious context doesn't make you saved. James 1, 26-27 says he's calling for righteousness, righteous living as evidence of true religion. James 2, 8-13, he's calling believers to love your neighbor in response to sinful partiality. And in James 2, 18-23, he's stating that faith is demonstrated by our works to combat a theoretical belief in Christ. This line of thinking is all throughout James's book. See, James understood the heart of man as designed by God. He understands it well. The heart is the real you. It always reveals who you believe, who you trust, who you worship. And it's always revealed by your words and by your actions. You cannot hide it. You may think that you are, but you are not. It's always displayed in what you speak about most, what you think about most, what you do, how you feel, fill in the blank. This is the inner man that the Bible shows us. The heart defined biblically is we call it the inner man. It's our cognition, it's our thoughts, it's our beliefs, it's what we think about most. It's why the Bible tells us to renew our mind, to meditate, to think about God's word. The inner man is also displayed in our affections, our desires, our emotions, our feelings. And it's also displayed in our volition, our, our will into choice. Jesus says out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? The inner man always comes out in the outer. You cannot hide it. And James' emphasis on works was not because he believed you could be saved by your works. Is that your works display the true worship of your heart. That's what James is trying to show us all throughout this scripture. And that's what he's going to show us today in taking the tongue as the representative. So why the tongue? Well, James is using a common Jewish literary device of attributing a blame to a specific bodily member. We see this throughout scripture used often. Jesus used it. Paul uses it, and here we see James using it, and he calls out the member of the body, of the, body the tongue. He's using the tongue to personify the depravity of man and the effects of, sin, of the sinful heart. The tongue is a reflection of who we really are, what we say, what we speak about, what comes out. 
And the tongue is also the easiest way for us to sin. I think he's using this because it's in our speech that we can sin most readily and most easily. See, other forms of sin may only come when the place, the place of opportunity is there, right? Things like murder, things like theft, adultery. There has to be some sort of circumstance, some sort of opportunity for us to act upon those things, yet it starts in our heart. But we speak all the time. Our mouths are moving every day. Things are coming out all the time. I looked this up just to see, I, I, I googled just the average amount of words that a human would speak in one day. And the best article I could find said that women speak about 16,215 words a day. Men speak about 15,669 words per day. And that was generous. A lot of articles had men speaking way less. But it always had women at about 16,000 words a day. Um, however you want to take those stats. Um, ladies, maybe you have more opportunity to sin than men. I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> but either way, it's an opportunity to display our hearts and, and who we worship, right? The tongue is often pointed to in Scripture as a focal point and vivid indicator of humanity's sinful heart condition. What James is doing here is not new to James. This is what God has done all throughout the Scriptures. We look at Isaiah 6, 5. When Isaiah is before the Lord in Isaiah 6, he says, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. What he's saying here is not that we just say bad things. He's saying our whole nation has utterly sinned against the Lord. It's a personification of the sin of the heart of Israel. But he personifies that in saying that we are people of unclean lips. Matthew 15, 10 through 20, Jesus talks about this. And he says, when Jesus says, he called, And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what goes out of the mouth that uh, this defiles a person. Now, the context of this is the, the Pharisees are yelling at him because his, his uh, disciples hadn't washed their hands properly. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? And he answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They are blind guides, and if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, Explain the parable to us. And he said, You are also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and it defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. See, Jesus is using the mouth to personify a holistic issue of sin within the man. Luke 6, 44-46 says, For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil, for out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. This way of talking has been going all throughout Scripture. The tongue was the emphasis of concern for James. He mentions it in every chapter of his letter. He mentions the tongue in chapter 1, verse 19 and 26, in chapter 2, verse 12. Of course, here in this section in chapter 3, in chapter 4, he mentions it again in verse 11, and in chapter 5, verse 12. James consistently points to the tongue 
as a measuring stick of the worship of our hearts. James is consistent with the word of God to display that there is no greater evidence of true worship of the heart than in one's speech. So we have to take this matter very seriously. And I hope that we do this morning. Now I want to give you some hope that will help us as we talk about this subject. I never did introduce... There you go. It's up there. Thanks, guys. (laughs) But our title today really displays the main point of our passage. The work of the tongue reveals the worship of our heart. That's what we're learning today. That's what James is trying to say. And I want to give you a little bit of hope in this statement as we work through this passage. Here's what I want you to understand. All, All true believers, through the power of God's grace and the help of the Holy Spirit in true worship will possess a sanctified tongue. Yet, our love for God compels us to strive towards a sanctified tongue. What I mean by this, and we're going to see in our passage today, is we do have the ability in Christ to see our tongues sanctified. We are able to speak in such a way that worships and glorifies God, but we also deal with the sin of our heart. That we do believe in progressive sanctification that we're going to talk about today. So our love for the Lord and our worship for God compels us to strive towards this. This is not going to happen just by accident. You are still dealing with your sinful heart if you're a believer. However, if you are personified by sinful speech, you may not be a believer. That's what James is trying to show us. That's the seriousness of our passage today. As believers, we are going to struggle to always speak in a way that honors and glorifies God, but we have to trust that the hope that we do have the ability because of the Holy Spirit, yet we must strive. Yet if there is no desire for this, if there's no evidence of this, if there is no conviction for this, it may be the evidence that you're not saved at all, in which you need to repent for the first time. Galatians 5.1 reminds me of this when Paul says, For freedom Christ has set you free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. For freedom, Christ has set us free. We're no longer slaves to sin and death, yet we must stand firm. Standing firm is the call to the Christian because we are able to also go back to a slavery of sin if we're not careful. We have freedom, but our love for the Lord compels us to strive for a sanctified tongue. So in today's passage, we're going to see some of the warnings against the untamed tongue and false worship. So our first point, James begins with teachers. False teaching leads us astray and leaves us condemned. False teaching leads us astray and leaves us condemned. This word here, that askelos, means teacher. This is speaking of the instructor, the Bible teacher, one who is competent with theology. This word referred to the rabbis of the day, and it also serves for anyone in an official teaching and preaching role of the church. This is What the elder has to be equipped with, has to have the ability to teach. Now we have to remember that the context of this letter is to the Jewish believers, so let's understand that first. Why does James begin begin this section addressing those who are teachers? Because it seems a little bit out of place. Everything else seems to be sort of to everyone, but he, he gets to the tongue and he starts with, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. That seems out of place, but as we understand the audience, I think it'll help us understand this. So rabbis were held in very high regard in Jewish culture. They were actually seen more important than parents. For the Jew, 
if, uh, if it came down to life or death, if, if the, the person's parents had been kidnapped with the rabbi and they were ransomed for money, they were to ransom the rabbi first and then get the parents if they could. The reason for that is they saw that the parents gave physical life, but the rabbi was the one who brought you into eternal life. So therefore, they were held in higher regard. But sinfully, many rabbis relished this, this privilege in a way that was, that was not honoring to the Lord. We see Jesus call this out in Matthew 23, 2-7. The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works that they do. <clears throat> For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. Sin had corrupted this office. And James understood that. And the reason why he's given this warning here is because James is warned against false teachers because of the importance of the role and the impact on the church. We have to understand that this role is very important. It permeates the entire church because the teachers and the preachers are the ones who are called to, to teach the word and disciple and raise the whole body up into maturity. So if the pulpit is corrupted, then the whole body will easily be corrupted. Ephesians 4, 11 through 12 where we see Paul mention this, he says he gives the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry for building up the body. So this office <clears throat> will impact the entire body. We understand this. That's why our elders take such painstaking time to work through different issues. And it, I know it seems slow sometimes, and I know it seems like we're constantly changing things, but you have to understand this is our heart. We understand that what we teach, what we preach to you, what we disciple you in, what we uphold as true doctrine impacts you and is the purpose of helping to build you and disciple you. So we have to be careful about these things. We have to be. Go to 1 Timothy, if you will. Turn there in your Bibles. We're going to look here together for just a moment. 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. I want to read to you the qualifications. Many of you are are familiar with this, but I want you to see what, what James is talking about here when Paul writes this letter to Timothy. 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7 says, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil. We see the deep sense of seriousness of this responsibility of being able to teach and to teach sound doctrine. James says this, that we will <clears throat> be judged with a greater strictness, and I want to talk about what that means in a moment, but there is a, a real seriousness about this role. And we, it's a deep responsibility of the ability to teach. The elders are to teach and keep watch over your souls and to help the body mature. 
The teacher cannot be a new believer. He cannot be immature in his faith. He cannot be easily tossed by every wind of doctrine. False teachers have the ability to lead the whole flock astray and leave them condemned. To make you believe that you have a relationship with God when you're far from it. And to let you blindly walk into hell on your own. You have to understand this is how Satan uses this. And many teachers in the church today are poorly grounded in the scripture and are ill-equipped to teach. Talking about things in, in such a flippant way without any depth of understanding. Leading people to believe many different winds of doctrine, being easily tossed, not understanding what it actually means to know God or to follow God, and they do spiritual and moral damage to the flock. Turn again to 1 Timothy chapter 3, or chapter 6, sorry. Verses 3 through 5. Here's what he says, Paul to Timothy. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, <clears throat> he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy, controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Let that warning stick in your mind. For someone not to desire sound doctrine, he is puffed up and understands nothing. We have to be careful about this. But this principle in this passage does not stop with the elders and the pastors of the church. We, this helps us when we understand the context of the Jews because besides official rabbis, at some points rabbis would allow respected Jewish men to be given an opportunity to speak in the synagogue and to teach. So this warning here would be understood by the Jews who got this letter that this do doesn't just mean the rabbi. This means anyone who would teach. <clears throat> and we have to understand that we are all called in some capacity to teach. So although this warning is primarily to the office of teacher, secondarily this warning goes out to all Christians, to everyone. We are all called in some capacity to teach. Those qualifications I read to you in 1 Timothy 3, this is just the qualification of character that a man has to have before he's even able to be qualified for the office. But these are qualifications for Christians. These are the qualifications that all of us are striving for to have self-control, to not be a drunkard, to be able to teach in some ways, to be respectable, to not be a lover of money, and so on and so forth. This is just what all Christians are striving for. We just have to be this so that, as Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. That's our, our role, to be examples to the flock. But we're all called to make disciples. Matthew 28, 16 through 20, we're called to make disciples and to teach them. Many of us in this room lead ministries. Husbands, we're called to teach and lead our wives. Husbands and, and wives, you're called to teach your children. We're all called as Christians to admonish one another in Colossians 3, 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Teaching and admonishing. Teaching the word and warning against sin from the word. All of us are called to do that. So therefore, this warning is to all of us. It is to all of us. What do you teach? What do you teach your neighbor? What do you talk about with your friends? What do you say about God? And let me just give a, an extra warning. If you don't read the Word, if you don't study the Word, 
If you don't understand the word, if you don't worship God, please do not teach. Don't. Just please do not teach. Go back to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. He says to Timothy, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Don't teach. Instead, be taught. I'm not telling you that you should never teach, but if this is you now, <clears throat> don't go around telling everybody what you think about stuff. You're not being helpful. You're actually being more harmful. If you don't know what you're talking about, keep your mouth shut. Be taught. Seek discipleship. Understand what the Word of God says so that you can speak it with wisdom. And I'm not saying that to be mean. I'm saying that with love because you're hurting others. You're confusing others. Don't do that. It is not helpful. This warning is not that we should not teach or be teachers. It is a warning to be faithful to the Lord in what you teach. This is a high standard. This is how people come to know the Lord. This is how people are protected in the Lord. This is how people grow. This is to be taught sound doctrine, which means to understand the word of God in truth and the true meaning of it, to exhort and to admonish. If you don't know what you're talking about, it's okay. Just don't talk about it but seek to understand it. Seek to understand. I'm reminded of uh, this story about the great Scottish reformer, John Knox. When he was, <clears throat> during his first time ever preaching, he was so awed and burdened by the responsibility <clears throat> to declare the, the word of God faithfully that before his first sermon, he wept uncontrollably and had to be escorted from the pulpit until he could compose himself. This is the magnitude and the responsibility of teaching God's word. This shows the heart that we should have in it. So do you have that same type of reverence for the Lord? Do you worship God to the point that you want to honor him in what you teach about him? Do you take the time to study and know his word so you'll be able to be faithful in what you teach? If not, it's a worship issue. It's a love issue. You don't love God, you love yourself and you're hurting others. And you're gonna be judged, we are all gonna be judged with a greater strictness. Now, when we look at this warning, it's not present tense, it's future tense, which in studying that, that helps us understand this is speaking about the coming judgment. This is not speaking about what people would think of you, this is speaking about the great white throne judgment that's told to us in Revelation 20, 11 through 15. Here's what it says. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead and great and small standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, when it, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire, and if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. We have to understand the magnitude of what James is warning here. This is about your soul. 
if you don't desire to worship God and if you're not, your desire isn't to speak in a way that honors the Lord, this has more to do with your soul. This is what he's warning. This is what he's warning to the teachers. This is what he's warning to the Christians, to the body. What do your words say about who you worship? I'm going to keep asking that question throughout this because that is the question. If you were to sit and to listen to a tape played back of your, your conversations throughout the day, how would you judge it? And that's not to condemn you, but that's to give you a warning to help you to understand this. So we got to keep going. That's, that's, uh, we're in verse 1. So verse 2 through 5a, the tongue has the power to control. The tongue has the power to control. James is using this hyperbolic language. Let's read it again. For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a very small member, yet it boasts of great things. He uses hyperbole here. And he starts with the truth. We all stumble in many ways. This is the reality. We all will stumble. We all do stumble. That's where I started out with that hopeful statement, right? That we have the ability to have a sanctified tongue, but we have to be compelled to strive for a sanctified tongue. We all will stumble. We all will struggle throughout our lifetime <clears throat> with sin. Perfection is not possible. There's only one who's able to be perfect, and that was Jesus. However, we are sanctified progressively, and we will have mature and purified hearts which is the source of righteous speech. We believe in progressive sanctification. Right? The Bible teaches us this. Progressive sanctification is a lifelong cycle of sin, repentance, renewal, and growth toward Christ-likeness that will only be complete when we meet our Lord. This is accomplished through the active discipline of the believer himself who trusts that the Holy Spirit is energizing his efforts. That's the definition I got from my counseling course with Dr. Stuart Scott, and I like how he lays this out. I'll say it again, it's a lifelong cycle of sin, repentance, renewal, and growth toward Christ's likeness that will only be complete when we meet our Lord. This is accomplished through the active discipline of the believer himself, who, who trusts that the Holy Spirit is energizing his efforts. This is what this looks like. And so it is vital to our sanctification to understand that repentance must be a normal part of your life. It should be as regular as you read your Bible or you pray because we all sin and have sin. And so we have to be repentant. And this is part of God's grace to give us that ability to repent. And so I want us to understand what are the elements of true repentance. Because we hear that word a lot, but many of us don't understand what it means. So I want us to understand this morning so we have the opportunity to do it well. So I want to look at the elements of true repentance. Number one is comprehending. In order for us to repent, we must first comprehend we must understand the truth relevant to our sin and our Savior before we repent. The Greek word most often translated repentance is metanoia, which denotes a change of mind. A change of mind. That's why we see throughout Scripture to renew the mind, Romans 12, 1 through 2. Psalm 1, 2, to meditate upon the Lord day and night. Ephesians 4, 23, renew, would be renewed in the spirit of your minds. John 17, 7, sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. We have to first, through the Word of God, comprehend and understand what the sin is before we can repent of it. We have to see it as sin. 
But we only can see it as sins if we compare it to God's word. We are to conform our lives to the word of God, not vice versa. God's word does not conform to you. We have to understand it. Number two, the second element of true repentance is confessing. Confessing. This is one that's often gotten wrong. Confessing is a twofold nature of inward confession, or the twofold nature of inward confession is revealed in the meaning of the Greek word homologeo, to say the same thing. We must acknowledge to God the fact of our sin and agree with God about the nature of our sin. That's true confession. To say the same thing as God about our sin. Do we see it the way God sees it? Do we acknowledge the fact that we have sinned and do we understand the nature of it? We can't just say we're sorry. We can't just push it away to get rid of the, the consequences. Do you understand that you've sinned against the holy God? You've broken the holy law of God. That you deserve the wrath of God. Do you see it in the way God sees it? We, this is the word that we see in 1 John 1, 8-9. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, there's that word. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So do you comprehend? Do you confess? And then do you choose as the third element of repentance? True repentance always includes a willful resolve not to repeat the sin. If you truly comprehend the nature of your sin, and if you truly have confessed it, then there will be a resolve not to repeat it. You will make great effort to put things in place not to repeat the same sin again. Isaiah 1, 16-17 shows this dichotomy. It says, Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before your eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good. There's the put on. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, and plead the widow's cause. It is the, willing, the willful resolve to choose not to repeat the sin that self-control has grown in the believer. This is how self-control, one of the, fruits, the evidence of the fruit of the Spirit, has grown in your life, through repentance. You say, I struggle with self-control. I can't control it. It's because you're not submitted to the, to the Word of God and to the Lord. It's as simple as that. People come to me all the time looking for complicated answers for their situation. It's really not that complicated. And they look at me side-eyed sometimes thinking, it can't be that simple, can it? Yes, it can be. Sin complicates everything, but God is a God of order and clarity. To not worship God is to worship yourself, and that gets really complicated. And in the worship of ourselves, we try to cling to our sin, and that gets really complicated. But the answer is to humble yourselves before a holy God, to repent of trying to be your own God, and to trust God as God. And he has shown us how to trust him very clearly. It is not that difficult. You must deny yourself. And then he says the tongue boasts of great things. Sorry. The tongue boasts of great things. Now, we see these two examples here <coughs> to show this. We talk about the mouths, the, the bridle and the mouths of horses. Horses are a very powerful animal, but the bit that goes on top of their tongue, that when you pull, presses down on the tongue, causing their head to turn, which the whole body turns. That's what James is showing here, that this small member of the body can control the whole body. Or the ship and its rudder, this small rudder, when turned, turns an entire ship. Once again, using hyperbolic language. But he talks about how the tongue can boast of great things. And this is a twofold meaning. There's sort of a neutral meaning in a sense of it can go either way. 
The tongue is able to boast of great things because we understand what the, what the tongue represents. And if the whole person worships God, the tongue and the whole body will go one way. But if the heart does not worship God, it'll go the other. So in the negative sense, the proud and the arrogant, you can go to 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 7 and Romans 1, 29 for a reference here. I won't read it for time's sake. But the, the sinful tongue leads to destruction, tears down, tears others down, gossips, slanders. It destroys churches, it destroys marriages, it destroys friendships, and it leads to murder and war. That's one way that it can go. And then there's the positive or the worshipful sense, when it's humble and God-glorifying. Ephesians 2, 25-32, James 3, 17-18, the passage right after this, speaks truth, is gracious and kind, builds up, is tender-hearted, forgives, seeks peace, is holy, set apart, wise, comforts others. That's the other way it could go. To control the tongue means that we are walking in full submission to Christ in all areas of our lives. It means our heart is controlled by Christ. So the tongue's able to boast in great things. That's what James is saying here. It means if your heart is controlled by Christ, your whole person will be controlled by Christ. But the tongue has the power to destroy. That's the next section that we see here. After he talks about the tongue can boast of great things, he, he starts with saying how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire. A world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird and reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. He makes it very clear what it looks like when the heart is set upon sin and pride. The tongue can set a whole forest ablaze. James calls attention to the magnitude and potential of the tongue to destroy. Sin always destroys and the impact of sin can reach far and wide. He first talks about the destruction of the flame. He talks about this idea of a fire. And many of us have seen news stories about forest fires. Uh, not too long ago, there was one in Australia that burned up half the continent. And the magnitude of that fire and the destruction was far and wide. Proverbs 12:18 says, There's one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. It talks about the devastation of the tongue. It feels like a sword thrust through your body. And that's true. The power to give life or the power to condemn and destroy sits in the tongue. Words have ability to utterly destroy. They have the ability to utterly destroy the person who says them and the person receiving them. Because if these types of words are coming out of your mouth, you are, you are destroyed on the inside. It is a poison. It is a fire that's set ablaze within you that's destroying your heart from the inside out. And it's setting ablaze others around you. Utter destruction of the tongue. The fire has the ability to burn indefinitely with enough oxygen. The more oxygen given to it, the more power given to the words, the more it can burn. And it can, it can go through a body of believers like a forest fire and destroy and tear apart and break and leave destruction in its wake. Proverbs 15, 28 says this, The heart of the righteous ponders how to answer, but the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. 
Proverbs 26, 20, for the lack of wood, the fire goes out. And where there is no whisperer, quarreling ceases. Speaking about gossips. Gossipers are, are some that can keep the fire burning. Fuel to the fire, like kindling to a fire. Psalm 57, 4 says, My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts and the children of man whose teeth are like spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp as swords. David understood this. He says again in, in Psalm 52, 2-4, we read this morning, Your tongue plots destruction like a sharp razor, you're, you're, you worker of deceit. You love evil more than good and lying more than speaking what is right. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. These words, I don't think, do justice to the reality, even though these words are pretty devastating. But I don't have to tell you if you've ever been at the, the tail end of someone's slander towards you, or if you've been the target of a lie to know the devastation that that can bring and the hurt that that brings. But not only does a fire have the burning element, the destruction that it brings, but also there's a penetration of the smoke, the destruction that, it la that lasts over time, staining the whole body. Sin leads, leaves lasting effects on people. Now thank God that he's given us a path to repent, forgive, and be reconciled to one another. But trust takes time. And some things may never heal this side of heaven. We have to take our words seriously. That's what James is trying to help us see. And then he says probably the most condemning statement where he says, And set on fire by hell. He's talking about where this is coming from. Once again, he's talking about which team are you on? Do you worship God or do you worship Satan? It's really what he's saying. Because if you don't worship God, you are on Satan's team, whether you believe it or not. Because there's only two kingdoms, the kingdom of God ruled by Christ or the kingdom of the world that Satan rules and reigns. And we'll, we'll be the ones on that great white throne judgment that we talked about earlier that are thrown to the lake of fire. That's what James is saying. He's bringing it to that place, set on fire by hell. Now, when he says this word, this word here actually is Gehenna, hell. And it's not found anywhere else other than the Synoptic Gospels when Jesus used it. Because it wasn't, it, it was an actual place that Jesus was using as an example of what hell was going to be like. It literally means the Valley of Hinnom. It's a deep gorge southwest of Jerusalem where, white, where trash garbage, bodies of the dead animals, and bodies of executed criminals were dumped and continually burned. The flame never went out. The location had originally been used by the Canaanite people and even some Israelite worshipers to sacrifice their children to, as burnt offerings to the pagan god Molech back in 2 Kings 23 before Josiah, the king of Judah, the good king, put it to an end forever. Because the fire burned at all the time and was full of maggots, the Lord Jesus used Gehenna to represent the eternal, never-ending torment of hell. So don't get it twisted what James means by this. He means what Jesus means. He means that this, if this is representative of you, this is where we go. Matthew 5, 22. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. That is that word again. That's what Jesus was talking about. And the Jews at that time would have known that place. They would have known exactly who, what he was talking about. And he used this as uh, an example. A physical example to understand the torment of hell. 
And then James here is drawing the realities to our sinful tongues. Now, as we close up our fourth point, I know our time's coming to an end. We have to choose who we worship. That's what James is getting at in this end, where he talks about no human being, no human can tame the tongue. In verse, I'm losing my place here, verse 8. But no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. James in this last section is holding the tension between what should be and what is. What should be and what is. If God is who we worship and we are slaves to Christ, we should not spew evil from our mouths. But we've already addressed earlier that James is saying no one's perfect. But this is what we're striving towards. If you truly love God, this should be what you strive towards. No, no one who says I worship God should spew evil from our mouths. We need the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit in order to do this. And that's what he's saying as he's pointing out this idea. Every kind of beast, bird, reptile, sea creature can be tamed and has, and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father. and With it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing, my brothers. These things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh water and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. If you say you love God, this cannot personify you. It should not be so. You cannot say I love God and then spew evil from your lips. It doesn't make any sense. We cannot be okay with this. But we need the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit in order to do so. That's what Galatians 5, 16-25 points out. Where he says, but I say walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. And if any of our have a charismatic background, he's speaking about the Word of God, because the Holy Spirit wrote this. So this is how you walk by the Spirit if anyone's confused. All right. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalry, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh and its, with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. There's a line drawn in the sand by Paul, by James, by Christ, always. You can't walk in the Spirit, you can't walk worshiping God, and the fruit of your life look like the fruit of the flesh. It doesn't make any sense. It is not true. Don't deceive yourself. But we all struggle with the lust of the flesh, therefore we must have the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit, and we must strive, repent, grow, mature, through humility, through discipleship, through learning, through growing in the understanding of the Word, through worshiping God rightly. That is how self-control is built. No other way. We cannot be immature in our faith. And if you're immature in your faith, you cannot stay there. All of us enter in as babies, but we are to mature and grow. This cannot personify us. The works of the flesh cannot be 
what personifies us most because that's an indication that you don't have Christ. James alludes to the words of Jesus at the end here where he talks about, can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine bear produce figs? And Jesus in Matthew 7, 15 through 20 says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit. Nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown to the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Once again, what do your words say about who you worship? That's what James is asking. So as we close, there's a constant tension for the believer of knowing what should be and what is. We know that if you're a believer in Christ in here, you're very convicted as I was preparing for this. I know of plenty of times when things come out of my mouth that are not honoring to the Lord and I must repent. I know it should not be so. But I know what is. Yet I want what is to be what should be so. And therefore we strive because of our love for the Father. There's that constant tension, constant tension between that. These truths should drive us to a humble dependency on Christ. That's what it should drive you to today. If you have the Holy Spirit through a relationship with Jesus Christ, you should feel convicted today and you should desire to be dependent upon Christ. That's a good sign. And you should repent in areas that the Lord is convicting you of. These truths should also drive us to a sober reality of ourselves. Good enough is not good enough. That's just what's true before a holy God. That's why we need grace. That's why we need Christ. That's why we need to repent. That's why repentance is part of his grace. Because good enough is not good enough before a holy God. Our thoughts, our actions, especially our words, should always be tested against the holy word of God. We must be in a continual state of repentance because God is holy and he has called us to be holy as well. So, I ask you again as we close, what do your words reveal about who you worship? Let's pray. Father God, what a convicting passage. We're thankful for James to lay this out for us, to give us the measuring stick to help us and to help us be reminded of the reality of who you are, your holiness, your splendor, how far set apart from us that you are, God but that you in your grace has made a way through Christ and that we want to humble ourselves before you to worship you, to strive. Our love for you compels us to strive to have a redeemed heart, a sanctified heart, which leads to a sanctified life and a sanctified tongue. Help us this morning, Lord. I pray for those in this room who maybe for the first time you're revealing to them that they don't have a true relationship with you. God, help them to repent and come into a true saving faith. For those of us in here who are, Lord, convict us and help us grow into maturity that we would be of those that the world could look to as a light to see your heart shining through us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.